You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu talks to two epileptologists about the newer drug treatments for the condition. So I think partly I think we, have, we do have, we have a problem uh, in accurately reflecting the severity and the spectrum of uh, side effects from these newer drugs and even the older drugs. But before that... You may have seen much in the news about the 50% drop in deaths from acute myocardial infarction. Earlier this week, I talked to Kate Molina from the Unit of Healthcare Epidemiology at the Department of Health in Oxford. She is one of the authors of the study in the BMJ that prompted those headlines. She and her colleagues used routinely collected hospital data to get a good impression of what's happening in England. And before we start, just a quick apology for the sound quality of the recording, as we caught Kate on her mobile as she was visiting the USA. So, Kate, um, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Could you just sketch out for us what you found when you when you looked at this? Sure. Well, we looked at trends in mortality from heart attacks in England from 2002 to 2010. And then we also looked at trends in event rate and case fatality. And we found declines in all three rates. Heart attack death rates fell by about half, while event rates and case fatality fell by about one-third. And we also then looked at what was driving the decline in mortality, because it is a function of the changes in event rate and then changes in case fatality. And then we found that that decline was driven approximately equally by both declines in event rate and declines in case fatality, just a little bit over 50% for event rate. And the big implication, the message is that both primary and secondary prevention as well as treatment are important in the decline in mortality that we are observing. Absolutely. Now, obviously, this isn't the first study looking at death from acute MIs. So how does this fit in in with the picture that we knew already? Well, what we knew already is I'll take you back a little bit a few decades ago when the mortality from coronary heart disease started to decline in the U.S. And then there was a meeting convened in 1978 um, asking the big question of what has been driving those declines in mortality rates, after which two studies were started. One of them was Monica, which was a big international study. And Monica had centers in a number of countries around the world. And they were trying to answer that question. And their study took place between mid-1980s to mid-1990s. And they found that two-thirds of the mortality decline in coronary heart disease was driven by the declines in event rate and they are the third by case fatality. What was not what was noticed in the Monica study is that the rates really differed by country and by region even within the country. And in the UK in particular, we did not have a study center in England. There was one in Glasgow and there was one in Belfast. So it was not very clear what is it what the picture was for England and what has been driving the declines in coronary heart disease in England. So part of that was that unknown um, gap, so to speak. So we would try to answer that question, knowing that it differs by country. And as you found that our results were different from the overall Monica um, findings, that could be caused by a number of factors, not just the fact that we did it at, at a different time period, 
but also they've included all age groups, we included a different population, and our cases and payment was different than the Monica study. Okay, so apart from the data that was put into it, um, was there anything different about the uh, the way in which the, the numbers were calculated in the Monica study from yours? Yeah, so the Monica study was the gold standard approach to speak because they had the clinical information that is used in making the diagnosis. Um, they had all the, uh, you know, the details that were needed to really make sure that it is really a heart attack. Um, as opposed to, in our study, we did rely on routine administrative data. And even though heart attacks are quite well coded in that data, by no means can I say that it is perfect, and we definitely accounted for all the heart attacks that have taken place in England. Um, sure. So let's just pick up on that for a second. I mean, how good do you think the, the routine data is? Um, you know, how, how accurate can we say that, that the results of your, your study are based on that data? It, it is. I'm quite confident in the results that it is quite accurate. The accuracy and validity of routine data does differ by diagnosis quite a, a lot. Part of the reason for picking to do MI in particular was because it is a very acute, um, quite clear condition that it, is, it would be picked up either by hospitalization or death. Um, and there's not, you know, it's not something more like angina, for example, which is, could be treated in primary care, doesn't necessarily result in hospitalizations, and the symptoms could be more vague. So in, in the case of MI in particular, routine hospital data are a good estimate. And we always have a trade-off. When we have really good data, the chances are it's an expensive study and it covers a relatively small proportion of the population versus if you have national data set, like in this case we almost had a million heart attacks. There's, of course, of a trade-off about a little bit about the quality and the accuracy. So we present um, our figure, what we found, but, you know, if someone applied different methods um, and different data sets, then we'd probably find slightly different figures. The rate of MI was one of the things that was used to compare the NHS in England to other countries and cited by Lansley as a reason for the need for reform. So given this new study, um, how does our declining rate compare to, to other countries? So, well, in this case, using routine data is actually a strength because when we start doing international comparisons, that is what we use to do them. Um, in the case of the NHS reform and the social and healthcare bill, the, the statistic that was quoted was the mortality rate for heart attacks in England compared to that in France, and they used one year of data for that. And so two points here. One is that you're doing very well because you see the declines, but two, because it's because you did the analysis that is over time and you look at what happens on a bigger picture as opposed to one particular point in time. And the reason why we, people can then take the paper and compare it to findings from other countries because hospitals systems exist in all countries, death certification systems also exist, linkage is now possible, and the, the, to produce figures like we did is very feasible in many countries, especially in Europe. 
So we are trying to, with our paper, we're trying to show what has been happening for England, but we're also trying to set an example and to say, look, you know, other countries can do this and produce numbers like this, which will be helpful in policy making. Um, with regards to the NHS debate in particular, there is a, a paragraph in the paper that addresses hospitalized case fatality, and that has been going down at a rate that is even faster than the overall case fatality. And the NHS is definitely plays a role in that, and it is really a testament to, see, to the NHS success that we're doing very well in heart attacks, and the rates are declining, and they're declining at quite a striking um, rate every year. So it, it's, I think our paper sits on the side of the debate where it is it can be used as evidence of NHS success. Absolutely, and obviously for anyone who wants to do anything like that, the full paper is available online for free on bmj.com. Kate, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. The BMJ is publishing a cluster of articles on epilepsy, a summary of NICE guidelines on the diagnosis and management of the epilepsies, as well as a patient's journey and a therapeutics article on newer drugs for focal epilepsy in adults. I have with me in the studio Professor Martin Brody and Professor Patrick Kwan, who are both epileptologists. Martin Brody, who is from the Western Infirmary in Glasgow, Scotland, came to this field via clinical pharmacology. Patrick Kwan, from the University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia, started out life as a neurologist. Gentlemen, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you. Hello. The older anti-epileptic agents have been around for many generations, including phenobarbital, which is about to celebrate its centenary this year, phenytoin, carbamazepine, sodium valproate, and several others. Since the 1980s, however, a number of new agents have been developed to treat epilepsy. Martin and Patrick are here to discuss these newer agents. Would you like to start out telling us what these new anti-epileptic drugs are? Well, you know, the term newer is important because one of the most successful, lamotrigine, was licensed in the UK in 1991 and it's been out of patent for 10 years. We have a whole range of other agents that have followed up lamotrigine, some of which have had problems and some of which have gone on to become useful agents. We're talking here about uh, oxcarbazepine, possibly, certainly levetiracetam, uh, topiramate, and more recently, maybe even pregabalin. I would also uh, perhaps add in lacosamide, which is among the list, the more recent one. And it yeah. does uh, seem to act a little bit different from the uh, traditional ones uh, with a similar mechanism of action. Some of these now are used as first-line uh, treatments and have monotherapy licenses. Some uh, haven't gone through the process uh, yet to head-to-head uh, -head comparisons that are required in Europe to get a monotherapy license, and these are used as, as add-ons. So we have drugs like lamotrigine and levetiracetam to pyramate, which are licensed in the UK for uh, newly diagnosed epilepsy. So let's get on to how well these newer drugs work. Would you like to tell us briefly what the evidence says about their effectiveness? Yeah, because of uh, ethical and uh, perhaps some regulatory framework of drug and epilepsy, 
or, or initially developed as an add-on treatment. And in this regard, and the way they were compared as a head-to-head -head with placebo-controlled trials, and all these licensed drugs have, uh, uh, not surprisingly, show effectiveness uh, when compared with placebo. As Martin said, only the f only few of them have uh, gone on to be developed as a monotherapy for patients with newly diagnosed epilepsy. Uh, the use of the drugs in newly diagnosed epilepsy, which I said a number of these drugs had, comes from head-to-head -head trials uh, with established drugs, usually carmizepine or controlled-release carmizepine, and no differences have been shown uh, to between the, the older drug and the newer drug, and this is accepted as uh, sufficient evidence for licensing. So you end up with all the drugs being, quotes, equally effective and some of them being cheaper. And clearly, whenever possible, you would want to use the, 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 the cheaper agent. What does the evidence say about how safe or tolerable the newer anti-epileptic drugs are? There is a, a body of opinion that feels that the newer drugs as a group could be regarded as better tolerated. And of the newer drugs, probably lamotrigine and levetiracetam are, are the two I'm, I'm thinking about. From our point of view as clinicians, the one thing that doesn't matter is efficacy, because if the drug doesn't work, you change it. If the drug does work and causes problems for the patient, you then have a decision to make as whether you try something else or whether the patient perseveres. And so really the driver for usage is, is tolerability and comorbidities in that some of the drugs are best avoided in patients with, for instance, psychiatric comorbidities such as depression, uh, anxiety and other uh, psychiatric problems. And is that because these newer drugs are thought to exacerbate some of these? Uh, they can cause similar symptoms and they can, uh, and they can exacerbate them and, and some people to say that perhaps we should stick with the established drugs which have a lesser tendency to do this. Are there other important side effects that we ought to be aware of? We, we don't have a good way to measure side effects in the clinical trial setting. So you, the drugs look very similar. You have similar uh, response rates, you have similar uh, withdrawal rates, often due to side effects or, uh, or complaints of side effects, but what you don't get is good handle or good representation of the variety and the spectrum of side effects from these drugs. So some of the newer drugs have a propensity for causing psychiatric problems, whereas you know other drugs, even the established drugs, seem to have more problems because of the enzyme-inducing effect on uh, perhaps bone health and drug interactions is something very difficult to measure in a clinical trial because patients don't complain, uh, doctor, my enzymes are being induced, and it's something if you don't measure it, we don't see it, and we're now only beginning to systematically measure these uh, psychiatric complications, including suicidality. So I think partly, I think we, have, we do have, we have a problem uh, in accurately reflecting the severity and the spectrum of uh, side effects from these newer drugs and even the older drugs. What are the uh, drug interactions that we do need to be uh, wary of as GPs who might be prescribing other drugs? There are a number of anti-epileptic drugs which uh, induce the metabolism of a whole range of other lipid-soluble drugs, particularly carbamazepine, also phenytoin and phenobarbital, but that's used a little less uh, in, in the uh, UK. But carbamazepine has been discussed in the same guidelines as one of the drugs of choice. And this increases the turnover of a whole range of lipid-soluble drugs, 
including anti-cancer drugs, drugs for AIDS, drugs for cardiac arrhythmias, steroids, oral contraceptives, so that the, the, the dosing needs to be increased in order to get the same pharmacological effect. So you need arguably uh, twice the dose if you're, if you're on an enzyme inducer. And of course, part of the problem is that if a general practitioner doesn't know about these things, the, the patient can have a problem such as breakthrough pregnancy if they're not given a high-dose oral contraceptive. And occasionally we've seen problems with patients who are taking methadone being started on carbamazepine for seizures because uh, this population often has seizures. Then the methadone requirements are increased and of course they don't get more methadone and they go back out in the street to get their heroin because they feel so bad. So there are lots of, of, of major issues. And we, as we also pointed out, there's now some evidence to suggest that uh, long-term treatment with these, these drugs can cause osteoporosis and even increase the likelihood of uh, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease because they increase cholesterol. Uh, and so this is a very much under discussion uh, among epileptologists around the world. The NICE guidelines recommend as a trade-off between benefits and harms and economic considerations offering carbamazepine, one of the old group, uh, or lamotrigine as yeah. first-line treatment for those with newly diagnosed vocal seizures. Um, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, the, the NICE guidelines give you the option of, if you have uh, the knowledge base, of making the best choice for the individual patient. I suppose one of the concerns one would have is that you have to have that knowledge base. I mean, for instance, uh, you mentioned carbamazepine for, for partial seizures. I've just discussed why I think sometimes this might not be a, a good drug. And certainly if any patient gets cancer, the oncologists who are treating the patient want us to move, remove the carbamazepine because this is going to make the cancer less likely to respond to treatment. And of course, you know, in, uh, as we go down uh, life's highway, who knows who's going to develop cancer? So one argument is, well, why, why give the drugs at all? Uh, uh, but the other argument is, well, they're safe, they're cost-effective, we have the most evidence for them, uh, and therefore this is an individual choice for the clinician uh, in discussion with the patient. Uh, the, the, yep. the, the, we have the same sort of discussion with valprate, sodium valprate, which um, uh, is regarded as probably the best drug for idiopathic generalized epilepsies. But we're now aware it's also the most teratogenic of all the anti-epileptic drugs we have and can even impair cognition in, in, in children, babies exposed in utero uh, up to six years of age. And this is new data coming out. So the, the NICE guidelines allows you to, to make that choice, but you have to have that knowledge. You've mentioned the issue of teratogenicity. Let's discuss the prescribing of uh, the newer anti-epileptic drugs to younger women, particularly, because they may be of childbearing age, and we need to consider issues like that. For uh, women of childbearing age, your concerns are twofold. One is before they become pregnant, when they are, uh, if they are taking contraceptives. So whether the anti-epileptic drugs would uh, interact with the oral contraceptive pills. So that's one concern. And as uh, Martin mentioned, a number of the uh, older drugs, uh, they are typical enzyme inducers, carbamazepine, phenytoin, phenobarbital, even some of the newer ones, when you get to a high dose, for example, lamotrigine uh, and uh, topiramate and I think ox and oxcarbazamine over a certain dosage also can also interact with the pill. In those situations, you can you need to either increase the estrogen component of the pill. Uh, better still, perhaps, is just to choose an alternative one that uh, do not have such interactions. 
Another uh, issue issue for these women are when they do become pregnant, the possibility of uh, teratogenicity. Uh, and uh, the new the newest data coming out from the Europe uh, Registry, which is a prospective uh, international uh, registry of uh, uh, women who became pregnant while taking anti-epileptic drugs, have now enrolled over 10,000 patients. And on the first uh, large analysis, they've shown that um, uh, valproate is particularly teratogenic, uh, followed by even higher even high doses uh, or relatively high doses of, of carbamazepine can also be teratogenic when compared with uh, a drug such as lamotrigine. Uh, and we do not have the uh, data for many of the new drugs uh, uh, yet, uh, although levetiracetam appear uh, safe uh, on uh, preliminary, da- preliminary data. Uh, so uh, these are the main, I think, the two uh, uh, major issues for these women. Okay, thank you. That's a very nice summary of of what uh, we need to watch out for. What are the key issues a busy GP with a patient who's already been started on anti-epileptic drugs by their neurologist need to consider with ongoing management with repeat scripts? Are there certain questions we need to ask patients about? Well, I think the first thing to say is that these days, it is very important to to make the patient seizure free if you possibly can. Uh, the The evidence uh, in the literature that relates to improved quality of life uh, covers three items. One is no seizures, not two seizures a month, not five seizures a month, but no seizures. That improves quality of life. The other is no or few side effects. If patients are having side effects with the medication, Reducing the side effects improves quality of life. And the third is treating comorbid uh, depression because many patients who have seizures, seizures are symptoms of brain dysfunction, have also other symptoms of brain dysfunction such as depression and anxiety. And this is what makes the complication with the drugs that can help these symptoms and, and worsen these symptoms. And our drugs are used for other psychiatric, other psychiatric disorders, so it's not surprising that some of them also cause psychiatric side effects, and this is a very complex issue. Thank you. That's a, that's a terrific summary. We also discuss the risks of sudden unexpected death and epilepsy, particularly if patients who are not fully controlled. This is a very, very important and, and worrying concern because patients with uh, with uncontrolled epilepsy, particularly with tonic-clonic seizures, uh, have an increased risk of, of, of sudden death, often in, often in bed. And uh, we are now working very hard as a specialty to try and understand this better and provide um, uh, <coughs> preventative strategies. Hence the importance of seizure control. Seizure control is, is optimal, but unfortunately... Um, uh, you know more, the work that Patrick and I have been uh, have been involved in in the last uh, 15, 20 years shows that although we are improving seizure control, there's still around 30% of uh, adults with the common epilepsies whose seizures remain resistant to uh, medication. And, and everyone is trying to understand this better, and hopefully looking forward to developing newer agents that will deal with the currently uh, unacceptably high number of people with uh, pharmacoresistant epilepsy. Thank you. That's a really helpful rundown of what we need to be aware of now with the newer agents. We have only skimmed the surface, but thank you very much for the summary of issues to look out for when prescribing these newer anti-epileptic drugs and discussing them with patients and how they impact on their lives. That's all for this week. 
Next week, we'll be back finding out how the UK's Department for International Development, DFID, decide where to put money when the evidence for different programmes may be lacking. And Harriet Vickers hears how money for healthcare has gone missing in Uttar Pradesh, northern India's biggest province. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.